Our reading is from Song of Solomon, the last chapter, chapter 8. And I'll read verses 3, 4, 6, and 7. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to lead us and guide us by the power of your spirit. Would you awaken our minds to a deeper understanding of this, your word? We thank you for your many gifts to us in Christ's name. Amen. Commentators disagree about a lot of stuff relative to Song of Solomon, but nearly all conservative commentators agree that Solomon did write the Song of Solomon. And so that's good to know. And it's right there in the title, right? Song of Solomon. Unless you know it by another name, Song of Songs, or by another name, Canticles. I mean, that's a weird name, but it's Latin. And when I first became a Christian and I was reading various like early church fathers and uh, reformers, I would see them refer to Canticles and I assumed it was in the Apocrypha. And I would think, why are they quoting from the Apocrypha? And it took me a while before I realized that Canticles was actually a book in my Bible that went by another name, obviously. Now I want to start with a brief reading from 1 Kings concerning Solomon. This is from 1 Kings chapter 4, starting at verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mehal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also he spoke of trees, from the cedar tree of Lebanon even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So we know Solomon wrote this book. We know that he was the wisest man of his day and likely the wisest man that ever lived. And so he wrote a thousand and five songs is what our text here said. And yet this is the only song of Solomon's in our Bible. And so I would say that you could say this is Solomon's greatest hit. It's the Song of Songs. The way that the Bible does that is it just has song in singular and then songs in plural. Song, songs. And that conveys to us that it's the greatest. God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings. These are ways in which the Bible simply declares God to be the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And this is the song of all songs. And I would say it's the song not just in his day, but in our day. This is, this book is the song that God wants us to know. Now I said that this book was written by Solomon and that most commentators agree about that. And had I known that they disagreed on pretty much everything else, I might not have selected it as a topic to talk about. Starting last summer, I started addressing the books of the Bible that I had not, never spoken from in like 12, 13 years. And there are a lot of them, the main messages. And so uh, by this June, I still had 19 on my list that I had never had a message from. And uh, 
Then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to include Gary and Phil, at least over the last 12 years. They knocked eight more out, so I was down to, uh, what is that, 18 minus 11, I had eight left. So, I had, or I, yeah, 18 minus 11, I had eight left. So now I've knocked out, uh, is my math wrong? I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have a math degree. Yeah, yeah. So I went from 19, yeah, down eight to 11, very good, thank you. And so, now I've knocked out eight more since then, since June. And so I'm down to three. But now in the last couple of months, Phil has decided to preach on every book of the Bible. And so I really ought not to have even considered continuing on with my quest. I thought, well, you know, Phil's gonna complete it for me. But I had already kind of been leaning towards doing this one, so I did it. Then I realized that while they agree on who wrote it, they disagree on everything else. And I'll share some of that with you. What is the title of the book? I've already given you three. Is it a single story or is it what is referred to as an anthology, which means multiple stories? What is its genre? Is it a literal story or is it allegorical or is it a mixture of the two? Is it only an elaborate typology or allegory or is there a true literal meaning and another meaning? Is it poetry? And if it's poetry, is it one poem or is it multiple poems? And if it's multiple poems, how many are there? Commentators disagree. Some say 14, some say 23, some say 31, others say other numbers. Is it a drama? Is this a play? And if it's a play, why does it lack narration or staging? It doesn't seem like a play. If it's a drama, are there two main characters or are there three? Are the two men that are referred to in this uh, story, the king and the shepherd, are they the same? Are they all just words for the beloved? Or are they antagonists? Was the Shulamite forced to marry the king and abandon her heart's desire, the beloved? Has the Shulamite spurned the king and eloped with her beloved? Or is Solomon her true love? And is he the only man in this narrative? There are different commentators that have all of these different views, and I have only summarized some of them. There are more. And so now you can see why people tend not to preach on Song of Solomon. But that's not the only reason, and I think you know that that's not the only reason. Now, uh, I, as I was studying Song of Solomon, I came across a little trivia tidbit. Every man who's ever written a commentary on Song of Solomon has gone insane. <laughs> Every single one, no exaggeration. This Thursday, I was downtown and I'd been teasing my wife in recent weeks or months about her exaggeration. And she tells me she never exaggerates. Well. I was downtown, we had lunch at the well-seasoned truck, and I told her, I said, there are these emergency vehicles west of here. And then later I learned that First National Tower had people working on something, fumes escaped, and the whole building was evacuated. So there are all these police cars, all these emergency vehicles. So my wife texts me after I get back to my desk, and she said this. She said she saw a gazillion emergency vehicles at the First National Tower, and after the word gazillion in parentheses, she said, no exaggeration. <laughs> now, I didn't walk over there to count to prove her wrong, so maybe she's right. Maybe there were a gazillion, and actually, I think I covered that before. Gazillion is a made-up word, so it doesn't really mean anything. Now, why is understanding the Book of Solomon and applying it to our lives so difficult? Well, for one thing, its language is very unique. All these Phil loaned me. So this is the Song of Solomon by G. Lloyd Carr. And let me read this quote. Although the song is a relatively short book of only 117 verses, it has an unusually large number of uncommon words. 
Of the approximately 470 different Hebrew words it contains, a very high number for such a small book, 47 occur only in the song, and some only once, and nowhere else in the Old Testament. Of the words which do appear in the other parts of the Old Testament, 51 occur five times or less, 45 occur between six and 10 times, and 27 more between 11 and 20 times, leaving about 300 common words in the song meaning that there are a lot of uncommon words. More than one-third of the words in the song occur so infrequently that there is little context from which accurate meanings can be deduced. Two-thirds of the verses of the song have uncommon words. Hence, many of the proposals made in the various translations and commentaries are at best educated guesses, particularly in the case of those words which are unique to the song. They may well be incorrect, so, the Hebrew is very tough to understand. There are lots of unique words, and the words are spread throughout the book such that, in a sense, you could say that much of the book, many of the verses are corrupted with these words that we don't understand and cannot figure out from context very easily at all. In addition, in addition, there are many, many words that are common to the Old Testament that do not occur in the Song of Solomon. And let me give you an example. I mean, he listed over 100 words. Temple, tabernacle, ram, ox, bull, altar, priest, atone, bless, sin, grace, evil, wicked, covenant, worship, Sabbath, offering, holy, righteousness. None of those words appear in this book. Now, that really in itself proves that this is not what is referred to of that era from 3,000 years ago of a, of a genre called cultic poetry. Pagans wrote poetry, but it involved usually things like this and sex because the pagans basically used sex as a means of worship. And because all these words are missing, it's rather clear that the Song of Solomon is fundamentally different from those texts. And so just to say that right up front. Now, another thing is that when you flip through the Song of Solomon, you'll see these various headings, the beloved, the Shulamite, to his friends, the Shulamite, the daughters of Jerusalem, all these are added. The translators, the interpreters have added all of these such that you can make more sense of it, but they're not necessarily correct. As many as 10% of those may be incorrect. The paragraphs, where they start and stop. Now, we've pointed out in the past that those are sometimes incorrect. We would have done them differently. But here too, the paragraphs don't necessarily start or end where we would think they should or where they really ought to. So the, the translators are making distinctions and they can allow the text to be patterned after what they want it to say as opposed to what it really ought to be saying. Now, I asked you a lot of rhetorical questions. I can't answer a lot of them. That would require a comprehensive study and it would require someone with more skill than me, frankly, to do that study and to present it to you. But there are two, at least, that really need to be addressed right up front. I'll start with the second, what I consider the second most important question, and that is this. Is Solomon the beloved? Is Solomon the man that is at the heart of this? Now we know the Shulamite is at the heart, but she puts him at the heart of this story. Most commentators, and so if you look at the New King James, the New American Standard, the ESV, you'll see that they all assume this is Solomon. Not only did he write the book, the book is about him. So to quote a song, he's so vain, right? So he wrote this song about him. That's what most people say. But when you study it, you see that there's not nearly unanimity on that perspective. And what is also clear is that when you read this, and like I read mine online, and I, I see from the uh, Bible Gateway, the New King James there, and they'll have all these headers that are not inspired but they'll allude to Solomon. This is about Solomon. This is Solomon doing this and that as if he's in the story. Well, that's a non-inspired header. We don't have to believe that. So what I had to do is get it in raw form, strip out all those headers just so I could really see the text. So the word Solomon does occur. We already read the first one there. This is the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs written by Solomon. So it occurs seven times, but really the only one that could be taken to include him and consider him the beloved is the last one. 
And that's in chapter 8. So we'll skip right to chapter 8. And let me read verses 7 and then 12. I already read 7. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Remember that. Now I'll read verse 12. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, hundreds. Now, in the NIV, this reads a little differently. This says, but my own vineyard is mine to give. But my own vineyard is mine to give. Who writes this? And here it's, it's described to the Shulamite. You have the, in my New King James, it has the Shulamite from speaking from verse 10 through verse 12, and then the beloved speaking. And in verse 12, she is supposedly speaking to Solomon. I don't believe that's the case. I believe this is disparaging Solomon. And it was based on this, waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Solomon wrote those words. And we'll get to that later. Now, this is the word Solomon. The word Solomon appears seven times, but when you read it, there is nothing that requires you to believe that Solomon equates with the beloved. There is another word that occurs five times, and it is king. And that, I need to go to the first chapter. So, chapter 1 of Song of Solomon, verse 4. Draw me away, we will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. This is ascribed to the Shulamite. The king has brought me into his chambers. And then down to verse 12. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me. Again, there is a different rendering in the NIV. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, draw me away, we will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. But in the NIV it says, let the king draw me into his chambers, bring me into his chambers. So there is a willingness on the part in the NIV, whereas in the New King James, it seems to imply that it has happened. That's important. That's an important distinction. Something different is happening in those two ways of rendering that, that sentence. Now, some regard this title king, again, as proof that this is Solomon that we're speaking of. He is the beloved. He is the one that is all these liaisons in Song of Solomon is about. But if that's true, if this word king does refer to Solomon, and it's literally because he's king that is referring to this. What about the fact that throughout Song of Solomon, there is this story woven in here about him being a shepherd? Now, Solomon was born into a very wealthy household. He was not a shepherd in the literal sense. So what you have to do then is take king to be literal and shepherd to be figurative. But I say, if that is acceptable, we can reverse it. If this is a shepherd, if the beloved is a shepherd, king could be referring to him figuratively. He is a king to this woman. And as a matter of fact, there's even evidence to indicate that in marriage at, in these days, it could be celebrated with representing the bride and groom as king and queen. They are king and queen for that day. And so they had little crowns that they would put on them. They would tr treat them. I don't think it was just jest or, or hypocrisy or fun or anything like that. It was just they were honoring them. So could the Shulamite be referring to this, her beloved, as the king? I don't know. That, that's what I believe might have been the case. When you eliminate the non-inspired headers, though, you see this man just referred to as a king twice, right at the beginning, right at the very beginning. Now, that's the first thing. Is Solomon the beloved? I don't think he is. And so I'm kind of going against the grain, but there are plenty of commentaries that also side with me in that regard. But now the more important question, the second question that I'll ask is, of what genre is the Song of Solomon? That is the most critical question to ask, because that then colors the way you look at all of these texts and what they mean. Now, for thousands of years, it was taken as allegory. And that's no exaggeration. 
The Jews allegorized it. The Christians allegorized it. Now, when they allegorize it, what that means is that they dispense with anything in it that is literal. The literal means nothing. So, for instance, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. That is an allegory. The whole story of Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. You have the castle of despair. You have the slough of despond. The man's name is Christian. Even in this fictional story that John Bunyan is writing, he's not trying to get you to imagine that there is a real person or could be a real person like this. It's all a big allegory. He, this is a veneer wrapped around an understanding that is telling you this is what you're to understand as a Christian. I'm telling you a Christian parable. And yet, for thousands of years, the Song of Solomon was only regarded by nearly everyone as an allegory, meaning that the words themselves meant next to nothing relative to you trying to understand them. They only had meaning relative to God in some way that we can allegorize it. For instance, let me give you a for instance. In chapter 4, verse 5, we read this. And this is the beloved speaking of his, uh, the, Shul the Shulamite. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. It's very provocative language. This is what Hippolytus, a Christian in 200 AD, wrote about it. The breasts are the Old and New Testaments. They have nothing to do with the woman. They're not a woman's breast, essentially. It's all to be allegorized away. This only refers to the Old and New Testaments. Origen, uh, a, a theologian around that same time. Now, he popularized this, and we do too. Uh, Jesus and the church, groom and bride. It's elsewhere in the Bible, but that's how he viewed the whole Song of Solomon. And there is a truth to that, but it's not the only truth. Jerome of the 4th century, Bernard of Clairvaux of the 12th century, they all have the same views. And they actually produced a lot of sermons about the Song of Solomon. Uh, Spurgeon, uh, Spurgeon wrote extensively on the Song of Solomon, but all allegorized. You, you can't get practical from that in any way, all allegory. Even the reformers, uh, while they said it was not entirely allegory, in practice, they really didn't attempt to use the Song of Solomon much. As a matter of fact, the one man in Geneva who did attempt to say that it was entirely literal and, for that reason, wanted it removed from the Bible because it was erotica that ought not be in the Bible, uh, John Calvin had him thrown out of Geneva. And that's the problem with people that tended to take it literally. They took it too literally. They didn't really try to understand it. They just regarded it as something that ought not be in the Bible. And then the church took opposition with those people because the Song of Solomon has never really had any credible attacks. It should be in the Bible. It's always been in the Bible, although it makes people uncomfortable. So they allegorize it away. Matthew Henry described, and let me read 7-8. It's similar to what I read. This stature of yours is like a palm tree and your breasts like its clusters. So the breasts are fruit on this palm tree. This is what Matthew Henry said. These breasts on this palm tree, these, this fruit, are pious affection towards Christ. That's exactly what Matthew Henry said about that verse. That's what it means. Again, all allegory. And all the older uh, commentaries you can find online, nearly all of them are all allegorizing the text away. Now, I don't believe it's allegory, but if it's not allegory, what is it? I asked you rhetorical questions earlier. Is it literal? Is it narrative? Is it drama? Is it poetry? If it's poetry, poetry, is it cultic? Or is it love poetry, as it would appear to be? Does it tell a complete story? Or is it made up of different stories, an anthology? Are the stories chronological in nature? People have a big problem with this. They don't view it as flowing chronologically, so they don't see where God's rules concerning men and women being together in these intimate uh, uh, endeavors can be honoring to God. It seems that it's all muddied, and that's why some people wanted it thrown out of the Bible. Now, these, uh, strength, these views all have strengths and weaknesses. I mean, that's why it's obviously been studied, and the commentators have written so many books. There have been... There were 500 commentaries on the Song of Solomon already by the early 1700s. 
And there have been a lot, lot more written since then. So I don't think Phil would want to specialize on the Song of Solomon as having all the commentaries on it, like he does with Revelation. Uh, it has had an enormous number of commentaries written about it. Now, I am going to share from a view, and I can't really marshal all the evidence for it, but this is the view that I believe Song of Solomon adheres to. Poetic, literal, and I believe it is chronological. I believe that you can overcome the uh, challenges to viewing it as flowing chronologically. And, and again, I present that and I'll walk through a bunch of text and hopefully it will make it seem plausible. Now, I am going to walk all the way through from chapter one through chapter four and I'm gonna read you most all of this. From chapter one, verse one to chapter two, verse three, I believe that it is the Shulamite and the beloved courting. Let me read this. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyards I have not kept. Now, what I just read to you, what I believe has happened is this is the Shulamite discussing with her friends, her girlfriends, about what is going on. These girls are young. I doubt not a one of them is over 17 here. So these girls are young in this story. And this one, the Shulamite, is in love. And she, listen to how this story starts. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. But is she kissing him? No. But she wants to. And who is she telling? Him? No. She's telling her friends, these daughters of Jerusalem. I want to read an excerpt from this book, A Song for Lovers. And it's really what he chose as the quote to head up his chapter two entitled The Birth of Romance. This is a quote from The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. The event of falling in love. In one high bound, it has overleaped the massive wall of our selfhood. It has made appetite itself altruistic, tossed personal happiness aside as a triviality, and planted the interests of another in the center of our being. And if any of you have been in love, you know that's exactly what happens. You have placed that person at the center of your world. Whether you ought to have or not, you did it, and it's real. It changes you. And that's what I believe this Shulamite is admitting in verses 1 through 6. And then let me read 7 to 10. This is to her beloved. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions, the beloved? If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. So now you see that they are arranging a meeting. And I believe during this period, they're already courting. They are already serious about one another. And I think all the significant parties that need to know that, know that. Starting at verse 11. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. This is her friends. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth his fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Again, this is just her talking. She's not reminiscing about something that really happened. She is looking forward to this happening. Starting at verse 15, they exchange compliments. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Behold, you're handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed, listen to this. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. They're together. 
they're laying out in a field somewhere looking up at the sky and they're talking to one another. Now, when you're courting, this is allowed. And I posit that one or more of her brothers is probably nearby, having been tasked by the parents to watch over them, watch over her. Chapter two, verses one through three. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. The beloved is saying that. He is describing her as a lily in the midst of all of her friends who he's referring to as thorns. <laughs> They're not for him. She, he only has eyes for this woman. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now, this challenges our view, and maybe they are doing something wrong that they ought not be, but I believe they're kissing here. His fruit was sweet to my taste. I think they're kissing. They, have, they were out here under the trees. I think they're supposed to be chaperoned, but here they are kissing. Some would say that they're doing more than kissing. I think that we can justify that they're only kissing, but what do I know? Okay, now... Next port is one of the more famous uh, verses from Song of Solomon. Verse 4 of chapter 2. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. For his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. I believe we've made a transition from courting to engaging. I believe when this, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love, this is a declaration of a transformation that has occurred in their relationship. They are now engaged to be married. No longer courting, no longer potentially having it end, but now we're committed to one another. And then the Shulamite says, the woman says, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Now, I'm going to skip this, but spring has arrived, and he has come to her house, and he has taken her away. But then we hit verse 14. Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock and the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. She's hiding from him. Now, whether this is a playful hiding or whether she's really trying to not necessarily escape from him, but prevent the relationship from progressing faster than it ought to, because listen what comes next. Her brothers, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Now, commentators are all over the map with that text, but I think what it could easily refer to is the brothers watching out for her, and she's responding to their watching out for her. She doesn't want to give in. She knows her heart. She knows her body. She knows what she wants. And she knows she can't have it yet. My beloved is mine and I am his. He feeds his, he feeds his flock among the lilies. And then to her beloved. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or young stag upon the mountains of Bethlehem. I think she is sending him home. Saying, you know, you must go. It's time for you to go. That's, what I, that's how I read it. Now, this next part, she has this vivid dream. Starting chapter 3, by night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I think she's dreaming. And this is a dream that tests her resolve, that tests where her heart is, how much she is willing to go and give to her beloved. In the dream, after, I believe, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, by those of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Again, this dream has scared her, scared her straight. Even though I'm betrothed, even though I'm engaged, I need to be cautious in what's happening right now. And I believe she does caution herself, caution these girls. So now we're at 3.6. This is also one reason, and let me read this. It just pops out of nowhere. Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders? Behold, it is Solomon's couch, with 60 valiant men around it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. 
Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. Now, many commentators will say then that this is a marriage procession. And so it's obvious from this that Solomon is marrying this woman and that this is her beloved. But I don't think so. I think this is just a scene that is painted here to, to be contrasted with this poor shepherd and his Shulamite uh, fiance. Because then it goes on with the beloved, starting at chapter 4, verse 1, and things have been transitioning now. I believe you could read these as wedding vows. He goes on, this is by far his longest soliloquy in the whole poem, all the way down to uh, verse 11. He speaks of her hair, her teeth, her lips, her mouth, her temples, her neck, her breasts. Um, and then, starting at verse 6 on down to 11, he refers to her as my spouse, my spouse, my spouse, my spouse, four times. I believe they've just been married. Then we come to verse 12. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, streams from Lebanon. But notice, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. But now at verse 16, the woman speaks. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And then the beloved starting at chapter 5. I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. And I'll just say these three phrases. In the first portion... From verse 12 through verse 15, the garden is closed. Verse 16, the garden has been opened. Chapters 5, verse 1, the garden has been entered. And so this is the consummation of their wedding day. They are now husband and wife. And then he comes out and he says, Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. It's a time of rejoicing. We've just been married. We are celebrating our conjugal love. And frankly, in that culture, that is often how they would do it. I think Pastor Kaiser's mentioned that. Um, the the uh, initial consummation of the marriage was a public event uh, it, behind a, a, a veiled bed. They had intimate relations in a public setting to confirm that they were now husband and wife. You know, we do what? You know, if anyone dares speak, that type of thing. We are pretty tame by comparison, I would say, to what was going on back in this day. So now, I believe her chastity was maintained all the way up through this point, and now she is his wife. And I want to read to you another portion from this book. Interpreters, in an effort to keep the song from being considered immoral, regarded it. Now, this is actually, this is not this guy, but he's quoting another guy from a book that he wrote called Song of Love, A Biblical Understanding of Sex by a man named Galwitzer. So he's quoting that man. Interpreters, in an effort to keep the song from being considered immoral, regarded it as the dialogue of a married couple and extolling of married love. But there is nothing in the text to suggest that the two lovers are husband and wife. On the contrary, it is because they are not married that they long for a place where they can sleep together without being disturbed. And then he cites an instance later that I'll uh, get back to. Setting aside the reference to bride, he just sets it aside. Setting aside the reference to bride as being only a term of endearment equivalent to sweetheart, he concludes, there is no way around it. These two people are simply in love with one another and are planning to sleep together without anyone else's permission, without benefit of marriage license or church ceremony, and that is in the Bible. So that's this man who wrote this commentary in 79 concerning this, saying that they aren't husband and wife, and yet this is in the Bible. I think he's dead wrong, and I think it's clear that he's wrong. If only he would open his eyes. 
Now this portion that I've just expanded on from 4.12 to 5.1 is critical to the whole book, and it sits right at the center of the book. I mean, this is the center of the Song of Solomon, and that's why it's the center. It's the most important part of the story. Now I'll uh, skip over some of this. I'll just kind of refer to it in passing, but at chapter 5, starting at verse 2 through 8, uh, there is what I consider another dream sequence. In this dream sequence, it's more like a nightmare. Um, after that, the bride again extols the virtues of her husband with these other women. And then the groom extols the virtues of his bride. We're up to the middle of chapter 6 at verse 11. And verses uh, 12 and 13 especially are very difficult for commentators. I guess they have a lot of words that are unique to that section. And they're... Did I lose my battery? No, it's good. Alrighty. So now starting at chapter 7, we have the, uh, and the groom describing the beauty of his wife then. Uh, your feet, your thighs, your navel, your waist, uh, your breasts, your neck, your eyes, your nose, your head, your hair. Uh, I'm not going to obviously attempt to share that in the romantic way that it should be shared. Um, my sermon isn't meant to, to do that. But if you married couples want to say these words to one another, then I, uh, by all means, go do so at home. And I think that's what she complains about in chapter 7, actually. She complains that she's a newlywed and she can't show affection to her husband. I mean, that's what goes on here. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine is budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. She is seeking a romantic getaway for them. Maybe this is the way they honeymooned then, but yet she is seeking opportunity to be intimate with this man. They're newlyweds. They can't keep their hands off each other. And yet social decorum requires that they do. So anytime they can, they slip away. It's understandable. We know this. We pretend it doesn't happen. But it happened. It's real. This is what God expects you to do. You're newlyweds. God understands. We might not, but God does. We call it PDA, right? public displays of affection. I remember once at a dinner years ago, I came up to my wife and there were a bunch of us at these two tables and I came up to my wife and she leaned her head back and I kissed her right on the mouth. And these people were sitting there like, the wives were thinking, boy, I wish my husband did that. I'll bet that's what they were thinking. <laughs> Tabitha's probably thinking, oh boy. <laughs> right at the end of this, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who just instructed me. She wants sex. And then she says to her friends again, the third warning, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Now she knows. The previous two warnings, she was giving as much to herself as to her friends. Now she's telling her friends, don't awaken love until it's time, until it's time to do so. Now, in closing, and I will close shortly, but I want to dig into chapter 8 a little bit because I believe that this also is key to understanding the Song of Solomon. And let me read to you starting at verse 6, and this is what I'd read at the beginning. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, Jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. So now this is a plea by the Shulamite to her husband to remain faithful to her. And I believe that would be total hypocrisy if this man is Solomon. And he has hundreds of other wives that he's attempting to please in the same manner. The love described in verse 7 is a gift beyond value. The selfless love, the love that I gave that C.S. Lewis quote from in, in the four loves. And the words are Solomon's own. And I believe he understood what he was writing when he wrote those words. He knew that he had already made a mess of his life. 
Five years ago, I preached this 10 sermon series on Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is also a book that befuddles many. And yet, Ecclesiastes tells a very simple story of the limits of earthly wisdom and Solomon's own attempts to circumvent God's wisdom in some way as a scientist and how he failed to do so. So Ecclesiastes proved the wisdom of men as being inadequate to correlate to the wisdom of God. And I believe this story exists in our Bible as a rebuke to the Solomons of this world who would treat marriage in such a callous way and treat their brides in such a callous way. And yet that is something that most commentators are reluctant to do. They're reluctant to, to condemn Solomon because then they'd have to condemn David. Then they'd have to condemn all, condemn all the other men that behaved in this polygamous way. Yet they ought to be condemned. It was wrong what they did. And we ought not pussyfoot around. What they did was foolish. And they reaped the fruit of that. David did. Solomon did. Now, in verses 8 to 10, these are the closing scenes. I'm going to skip over 8 and 9. I believe that is a flashback. It's the brothers looking back to just a few years ago when they described their brother as having no, or their sister, as having no breasts. But then she says, I'm a wall and my breasts like towers. She's telling her brothers, stop thinking of me like a little girl. I'm a woman now. Treat me like a woman. That's what I think. Now we're down to verse 11. In most Bibles, verse 11 is ascribed to the woman. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. In other words, Solomon has this vineyard and he leases it out. And, and then he reaps the rewards of it, yet he has to pay all these people to maintain it for him. So he has to give them 200 of those coins to the keepers. Now, in the message, I looked at all these varieties of Bibles because I was puzzled by this myself. It didn't make sense to me. And as I dug into it more, now in the message, and the writer of the message uh, does view Solomon as the beloved, but even he ascribes this to a man who is not Solomon. And so that's odd. You know, that just made me think. Then I read the commentaries, and I want to quote from this one now, this Tremper Longman commentary. And it's concerning this. this is, he, he is a man that believes it is a poem, and it is an anthology of poems, 23 poems to be precise, and this is the 22nd one. This poem is filled with enigmas, beginning with the question of who is the speaker. Nothing in the text clearly indicates the speaker, although the speaker is certainly an individual, note the first person's singular suffix, and so the chorus is ruled out, so it has now to be the man or the woman. But is it the man or the woman? If one believes that there are two characters in a song, and one of them is Solomon, then the woman is the natural speaker, and that's why I think most Bibles have it as the woman. Others, however, detect a third speaker who is male, and understand this speech to be his effort to slap the lecherous Solomon in his face. Now, this man disagrees with that view. That's why he writes it so, so uh, callously like that. But that is exactly what I think is happening. This is the beloved. This is not the Shulamite. This is what the beloved says, the man. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone is to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. In other words, this is him describing how Solomon treats his vineyards. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. In other words, you keep your vineyard and your money. I have my vineyard. And let me read another uh, reference to this that is in here concerning that last text I just read. This is, now, this is a man by the name of C. Vanderbal, but again, he's quoting another man by the name of Klaus Schilder. Let wealthy Solomon keep what is his, his thousand pieces of silver, his accretion of capital, his royal domain. The bridegroom does not begrudge Solomon. Now, he thinks it's the woman speaking. I think it's the man. The bridegroom does not begrudge Solomon his possessions. The bridegroom has something that Solomon, a ruler living in the public eye, does not have. 
King Solomon cannot manage all his property personally. There are all sorts of strangers coming between him and his property, his vineyard, namely his watchmen, guards, pruners, grape treaders, rakers. But there is no one to come between the bride and his bridegroom. His, and his bride. His vineyard is for him alone to behold. There is no stranger involved in the affairs of this couple. Property and possessions go together here, as do possession and management. Solomon has to give a good part of his vineyard's produce to people who work for him, at least a fifth of a thousand pieces of silver. But the bridegroom has complete possession of the bride. All that she is and produces is exclusively for him. She is indivisible. And so are her prophets, for everything belongs to him. Yet he is of Christ, and Christ is of God's. And then it ends appropriately. You remember it begins at the beginning. It has the thing saying that this is a song of songs, which is Solomon's. But then it has the woman proclaiming to her friends her love, for this man. And yet this is how it ends. This is the beloved. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. He wants to hear her voice. Make haste, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. So it ends with the two of them talking to one another, communicating to one another. Now, the Bible, the Song of Solomon is definitely the raciest part of the Bible. It's not the only part of the Bible that's like that, though. Let me read to you from Proverbs 5 starting at verse 15. This is a metaphor for the man and woman in relations. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word teaches us what is very important to we humans. You value sexual intimacy and you've given it to us as a gift for us to share with one another within the confines of marriage and we thank you for it lord we want to honor you by obeying your word in treating this gift with the dignity and honor that it deserves and we pray lord that we would be truthful to one another that we would celebrate this gift that you've given that we would heed the cautions of the bride to her friends to not awaken love until it pleases. We give you thanks, Father, for your word, for all of your many blessings. We ask you to uh, draw close to us that we would draw close to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.